This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here on my own today because I conducted today's interview with Joanna Noggle, the editor of The Bear. She's Emmy nominated for season one, um, but of course, season two of The Bear premiered in June. So we had a lot to talk about across both seasons. And I think a show like The Bear is maybe a good way to learn if you've never really thought about what editing does, because editing is often invisible. And I talked to her about this, about how a lot of times your job as an editor is to make cuts and streamline a story in a way that people will never notice. But the bear is really flashy and not just in the way that scenes are edited, but in the way that it incorporates childhood photos and music and tiny insert shots of a knife cutting that kind of makes you feel differently about the scene than you would without it. And she talked about how she and the creators of the show really built a lot of that language in solving story problems in season one and then kind of helping define like what the vibe of the bear is so that in season two, they could really expand on it, break some of their own rules. She says she thinks season two is funnier than season one, which is interesting because season two also has like some of the most harrowing <laughs> episodes of The Bear. Um, but getting her perspective on it is really kind of like seeing the show through entirely different eyes. So I had a great time talking to Joanna, and I think you'll have a great time listening to it. So now hear my interview with the editor of The Bear, Joanna Noggle. So I'm excited to welcome Joanna Noggle, the Emmy-nominated editor of The Bear. Um, Joanna, I know editors don't usually are aren't usually in the spotlight, but hopefully it's fun to get to dig into your work in this way with people like me. So thanks for talking to me. Oh my gosh, of course, yeah, and to work on a show where the editing gets to kind of be a little <laughs> bit flashy and showoffy, um, it, it's fun. Then it gets a little bit more attention than maybe some other projects. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm an editor as well of writing. And I feel like a lot of times my job is to be is to go unnoticed. And I think you probably relate to that. So when, when the spotlight's on you, you're like, wait, am I supposed to like get the attention here? <laughs> it's exactly. a different feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels a little bit unusual, but definitely very grateful for it, too. Um, so before we talk about the bear, you know, we don't talk to editors on the show very often. And I think that's a really interesting career path because I think a lot of people are like, oh, you go to film school because you want to be a director. Um, and you went to NYU film school. But from what I understand, we're pretty certain early on that editing was the career for you. Um, so can you just talk about how that revelation happened and why why editing this very specific but really essential part of filmmaking? Of course. Yeah. When I started at NYU, I knew I loved filmmaking. I loved how collaborative it was, but I wasn't sure exactly what path I wanted to take and was toying with 
writing, directing, producing, um, even animation at one point. And then I took a class sophomore year called Sight and Sound Film, where we were shooting on 16 millimeter film and then actually editing it on a Steenbeck. So literally like cutting and taping it together. And something about how tangible that that process was of just literally seeing, oh, if I take this clip and put it next to this clip, it creates an emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. Like something just clicked for me. And I was like, this is such an important part of the storytelling process. Everyone always says editing is the last draft of the script. And I find it incredibly intimidating to just look at uh, a blank final draft document and say, you could write anything in the world. I'm like, nope, my I <laughs> cannot think of a single thing, not a single word. Um, but if someone is like, here's all the puzzle pieces, what's the best way to put it all together? That is so creatively inspiring for me. And I love working within those constraints, but also trying to think outside the box, do some creative problem solving and tell the best version of the story. Yeah. I mean, is breaking into the industry as an editor similar to what we understand about like directors or actors where you start small, you meet people? Is is it a different path than maybe some of your film school colleagues were? Yeah, it's different in that there's a couple of different routes you can take. Like one is the more traditional assistant editing route where you spend years assistant editing and kind of work your way up and you get to work with a whole bunch of different editors, learn a bunch of different workflows. My path is a little more unorthodox in that um, I started working at a post house and then eventually became a co-owner, Senior Post. Um, and it was started by a guy named Josh Senior. And we really got along well and we've been working together over a decade now. And we're lucky that we were able to make the jump from editing commercial commercials and music videos and online videos to then doing comedy specials to then doing scripted content. So I don't have as much assistant editing experience just because, you know, I met enough people who were willing to give me a shot and then I did a good enough job that they kept hiring me to edit. <laughs> um, but it's tough. I mean, you know, uh, it's hard because you need that person to believe in you to, you know, people only trust what you've done already and a lot of times don't uh, want to take the risk of seeing yeah. if you can do something new. So I was really lucky that I met people who were like, I think she could cut this. Like, let's give her a shot. And then, you know, just tried my best to knock it out of the park, worked really hard on it. And I'm really lucky because those are the same people I'm working with today. And we really get along well and have developed a similar taste and visual language. Um, and it's so easy to work together now. Yeah, I mean, that jump to comedy specials feels like a big one because, you know, you're looking at your IMDb, like people like Phoebe Robinson and Chris Gethard, like people who are starting a, a certain, you know, niche fame and then build their way up and up. It, did that feel like a big leap to you then? Did that like kind of teach you the tools that you that you have to work with now? Oh, definitely. And those were some of my first TV credits. Like the Chris Gethard special was the first thing I edited and it, that was on HBO. And we were so excited to like, you know, be like, we have a credit on TV and it's a premium <laughs> subscription. It's so cool. Um, and I'd actually been seeing Chris for years perform in New York. Like I was just a fan of his. And then we knew the director of the special. So that was how Josh and I were kind of given this opportunity to have senior posts make the jump to, to TV content. And, you know, editing a comedy special is very different from scripted work in some ways because you're basically cutting a live performance, but there's still so much timing to it, choosing the right angle, if you're working with multiple performances, making sure it's seamless. So I think it was a great kind of like intermediary between cutting commercials and like short branded content videos to then doing something longer form that aired on TV and, you know, hit all those comedic notes to then cutting shows like Rami or Big Mouth or The Bear that have this very comedic angle to them too. Yeah. And is that the path that leads you to the people on The Bear? How does that relationship get built? 
Yeah, exactly. So basically, once we started doing comedy specials, then um, we met A24's TV department, mm-hmm. which we were cutting Two Dope Queens and a couple of their other comedy specials. And then I was able to meet Rami Youssef because he was cutting his pilot at Senior Post. And even though he had another editor, we hit it off and our similar age, we're both from New Jersey, both come from religious families. So it was easy for us to kind of connect and understand that we had similar taste and sense of humor. Um, so he asked me if I wanted to be an editor on the show when it was renewed for the first season and Chris Storer was one of the directors um, and co-EPs on Rami so I got to know him as well so when he was making the show called The Bear he came to Josh and he came to me and I was so lucky that they you know I was their their first choice to cut it and I of course was was thrilled to do it and yeah. uh and yeah it, it's been one of my favorite projects I've ever gotten to work on I mean, The Bear is so distinctive. And like when it premiered last summer, I think a lot of people didn't know. I don't think anyone knew it was going to become this huge phenomenon. But it's hard. It's kind of neither fish nor fowl. It's comedy. It's drama. And I know Rami has elements of that, too. But was it hard to, to wrap your head around what it was going to be when you first started on it? Yeah, seeing the first dailies, I was like, what is, like, everyone's just yelling over each other. This kitchen is chaos. And um, after talking to Chris more about the style of the show and the vision for the show, I just totally got it. And I love the idea of just really wanting to make the viewer feel like they were standing in the kitchen alongside those characters and not spending a lot of time with exposition, not explaining what their lingo meant, their shared language. It was Mm -hmm. a way to just immediately show the dynamic between all these different characters. They have years of experience working together, living at, you know, the beef, the the family dynamics of the Burzato family. And I love that Chris had enough confidence to just kind of throw people into the deep end, um, start the show with such a fast paced, you know, introduction to Carmi, and then kind of just giving people space to fall in love with these characters and see their collaboration come to life. And I think this season, especially, we tried to infuse a lot more comedy in it too. Um, Mm. You know, there's, there's definitely really dark moments in the show, but we always try to have really pair that with really light moments also because to me that's that's what makes the show feel so relatable and so much like real life you know there's very few memories that I have that are only sad or only stressful and don't have some sort of comedy or silver lining or joy to them so I love being able to find those moments in the edit and finding that balance between making all those emotions come through but still feel authentic I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
Okay, so speaking of memories, like one of the things that really stood out to me rewatching System, which is the the episode that is cited in a lot of the Emmy nominations, even though it's obviously for the full season. Um, but you get the family photos showing up in that, and that recurs throughout the season. I think it's in season two as well. Wait, was that part of the script? Was that something you guys came around to? That's such a specific, distinctive bear thing to me. How how did that become part of the show? Absolutely. Yeah, that was something we basically found in the edit. Mm. Um, we recut that first montage in the first episode, um, which is it originally was scripted as a bunch of different scenes, each like playing out in their entirety. So it was like, you know, Carmi goes and meets up with the guy to get the meat. It's not enough. Then he goes and he looks at Ball Breaker. Then he makes the beef. Then he gets his jeans. And instead, Chris was like, I really just want everyone to feel like they're drowning from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like we need to set up that Carmi's like, basically in hell by coming back here (laughs) and questioning why would someone do this to themselves? And of course, then the rest of the season uncovers that and it becomes a story about family and grief. Um, But in those first couple moments, it was like we were were trying to introduce Chicago as a place, Carmi as a person, set up the stakes of the world. Um, And so originally, we just were putting in a lot of archival photos of Chicago. And then Chris had the, the great point that everyone has seen Chicago, or at least is aware of Chicago, but nobody has seen the Berzato family. No one Mm -hmm. knows Carmi. Berzato. So uh, one of the sequences I really took inspiration from was this uh, sequence in Raging Bull where they're playing all this like archival footage. Um, it's showing like um, Jake LaMotta getting married to his wife and there's all this like old um, family footage and it just feels so nostalgic. And so that was one of the things we arrived at was, oh, if we're putting in photos of Carmi's family and we see the emphasis that food has played in his life with his Italian heritage, um, I think that'll just immediately put us put us in a place where we can understand this character a little bit more and mm-hmm. see why coming back home and taking over this restaurant would even be a possibility because it seems so horrible at yeah. the beginning. Uh, we have to give a little bit of justification of why this person would come back to a place that clearly would make anybody lose their mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so those are, are they Jeremy Allen White's photos? Are they other people? I mean, there's a, there's like old vintage, like 50s photos, but then there's some that are so much from the 90s. You're like, you're at least meant to think that it's from his life, right? Exactly. Yeah, some of them are definitely Jeremy, and he helped us source those. And then some of them, I think, are like uh, family members, like photos or photos we found online and were able to clear. Um, So basically, yeah, just trying to show like the generations also of people who came to create this family and kind of leave us where we can take off and follow Carmi's story from here. Yeah. And there's a glimpse of Michael, like of John Bernthal, I think, from the back somewhere in that early montage, which... Is that the only time you see him in the episode? You know, his story unfolds so much throughout the season. So is that a similar thing you guys came upon late of how to get Michael in there? Yeah, I mean, we had so many conversations about, we would call them like the panic attack Mm. montages Mm -hmm. where Carmi is, you know, whether he's drifting to sleep and it turns into a nightmare of him almost burning down his kitchen or just feeling overwhelmed in the moment. And we were always saying to ourselves, like, what what would Carmi be thinking of in this moment? And maybe it's a flashback to the restaurant where he worked in New York with his really abusive boss. So maybe we'd see a flash of Joel McHale there, or maybe we'd see like a knife cutting into meat, which feels a little bit like uneasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we really wanted to come back to was Michael also. And he's just this like presence that's looming over everyone. And even though he's no longer here, you know, he's just felt everywhere in in the beef and is always on Carmi's mind. He's always on Richie's mind, Sugar's mind, like so many of the characters. He's just like this angel who's, who's <laughs> you know, overseeing everything they do. So maybe Making sure to flash to him throughout the season was a way to make sure that was coming through of behind almost every decision Carmi makes. It's because of him trying to understand his brother, why he made this decision to end his life and how that's impacted him now and his, you know, future as a chef. 
Yeah. So when you're cutting these episodes, are you sitting with all all, all of the season's episodes at once and seeing them as a whole? Or do you have to take it more piece by piece? So the season is primarily edited by me and another editor, Adam Epstein, and we kind of have our episode assignments from the beginning, but they're coming in. They usually do block shooting. So sometimes we'll be getting stuff out of order or we'll get certain scenes that are for episodes and that's kind of all we have to go on. So it definitely is a little bit piecemeal, but the season does come together really quickly. Like we're cutting throughout production. We're constantly in touch with the people who are shooting, um, you know, Chris and Josh and Joanna, all the people on set to say, oh, if we had a little bit more chopping B-roll here, or Mm -hmm. if you could pick up this shot, um, that's one of the benefits to primarily having one location in the first season is they could kind of easily grab stuff if we needed to. Um, So anyway, as Adam and I are seeing the season come together, um, there definitely are certain scenes that end up getting shifted or there's footage that we end up reusing, mm-hmm. whether it's supposed to be a memory or this, these panic attacks. So I love how often we're able to draw from this well of, you know, stressful images <laughs> throughout the season and have them flare up uh, as Carmi is having these these stressful moments. And I think the same way they're playing in his memory, hopefully they'll also bring up a memory for the audience and they can also be right there with him starting to remember what it felt like watching that episode and having your palms sweat and feeling stressed and yeah. having that motif kind of take us throughout the whole season. Yeah, because that first season you're building so much to the revelation about Michael and and like what happened and the impact of him. So I'm wondering if there's like a you know a little dot sticker in your brain where like episode one, one second of Michael, episode two, four seconds of Michael. Like, is it really that literal of a building process across the season? Yeah, it would be interesting to do a time breakdown to see exactly how many <laughs> clips. That's such a good point. I mean, episode six is when we actually see the flashback of him. Yeah. Um, and so I think anytime we see him before that, we try to just make it a really quick moment or we were even like zooming in on footage sometimes. So you were like only seeing his hair or only seeing like the back of him standing at the sink. Um, so I think we tried to lean into a little bit of like the mystery of who he is and just getting a glimpse of him as this like larger than life figure. Then after episode six, when we see this beautiful flashback of him and Richie and Sugar and and Carmi, um, then we started to use his face a little bit longer and making it a little more recognizable. And obviously building to that very last moment of season one where he has that smile at Carmi that just, you know, is so... It's so meaningful, and I loved looking at those dailies, and I feel like John Barenthal just nails it. So I think giving, you know, a little breadcrumbs, I guess, throughout the season, we really mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that that last moment landed, and we had to see him enough for that to make sense, but also not make it so obvious who this person was before we really got to understand the full picture. Yeah, and I feel like even though Sugar is alive and much more of a part of the show, like, her role, she's so outside of the beef for all of season one, and that first scene where you meet her... Like time kind of slows down. You got that Wilco song playing in the background. And I'm it seems like you guys made the most of a character who was important but not in the show a lot. And I'm curious how that worked from your end, how to emphasize her without her being part of the action in the kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we intentionally leaned into her being an outsider in season one because she had to be that voice of Carmi saying, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Like, let it go, let it go. And the audience doesn't even really understand, I think, until the end of the season why he can't let it go. Like, by all accounts, yes, you know, the place he's working in New York seemed horrible, but it seems like he could work anywhere he wants. You know, he's the most talented chef in the world, basically. Um, So I think that was kind of the purpose that Sugar served was, first of all, like a connection to his family that was a little bit softer and maybe healthier than what we see of his relationship with Michael. But also this reminder of like, you don't have to do this. Nobody is asking you to do this and realizing that this is something Carmi needs to do for himself. Yeah. Um, And I think the change in season two of then 
Sugar realizing she also wants to be part of that is such an important reason of how the bear comes together, you know, Mm -hmm. the restaurant at the end of season two, because, you know, Carmi is very, very talented in many ways, and he is completely useless in other ways. So I think the way that in season two, he and Sugar and Richie and Sydney can all kind of like find each other's strengths and weaknesses and figure out how to complement each other is such a nice parallel to Sugar not being as involved in season one and maybe not thinking that much of how she relates to the team and then really getting to explore and appreciate that in the second season. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about season two, leaning into the comedy some, is that something you're able to do because the characters are more established, because the show is more established? Like, how do you talk about saying, all right, we, you know, and a lot of that's in the editing, right, about making it more comedic. How does that become a shift that you guys can agree on? Yeah, definitely. I think my favorite comedies are uh, when you know the characters so well that they can basically say anything and you're like, oh my God, like that's so fact. Of course <laughs> you would say this. Um, and it's it's a little bit less like, you know, obvious than like set up a punchline, set mm-hmm. up punchline. It's just funny because you know these people and they're your friends in the same way if your friend says something that, uh, you know, is so... So, so expected or feels like, you know, oh, of course, this is their dynamic that is inherently funny and comforting and warm. I feel like Succession did that really well for such a heavy show. You like all the Roy siblings were so well drawn that you're like, of course, Roman would say this right now. Yeah. Um, so anyway, in season two, I feel like we really tried to lean into that. And now that all the actors knew their characters so well, there was definitely a little bit more room for improv. And there were definitely some moments in the Christmas episode that they kind of let um, the Fact Brothers like uh, <laughs> improv with a lot of the other characters as they're pitching the business ideas, they're playing dice with Mulaney. Yeah. Um, so I think really looking for those moments to let the characters come through, make them seem funny, <laughs> or allow them to be funny. I didn't take much work on my part. Um, and not being afraid to, you know, have a moment of levity with a moment that was a little bit darker, too. And um, I think it would be easy to really cut something for the comedy, but instead just having like one joke, you know, in an otherwise dramatic scene that can be more surprising and therefore Mm -hmm. have a bigger effect than being like, oh, seems like we're building to a punchline or something, just having it almost as an aside that ends up being really funny. Um, There's so many lines in the show that like kind of you'll blink and you'll miss it. Like there's so much going on that I feel like we don't always go out of our way to be like, look, look, we're doing something fun. It's like, oh, no, this should just feel like real people interacting and it will be funny because um, Tina is always, you know, kind of a stick in the mud. And now she's finally coming around. And isn't that pretty funny that like now she's like Sydney's number one biggest fan, even though she used to really, you know, go against her. Um, So, yeah, I think just like not not being afraid to to let those moments shine but without calling too much attention to them yeah or i think in, in season two the the use of taylor swift's song in the richie episode where it's both oh funny God. and like this incredible emotional catharsis it is the exact same thing like it's not like one to the other they're completely together and cutting around that and building to that moment is kind of an amazing magic trick honestly how'd you guys do that Oh my gosh, yes. I have to give credit to Adam because Adam was the primary editor on that episode. But I watched it so many times and that episode brings me to tears every time because (laughs) I'm just so proud of Richie. And that Taylor Swift moment is... I feel like it's so earned. You know, we hear Taylor Swift mentioned a couple times throughout the season. Tiffany's even wearing a Taylor Swift shirt during the Christmas episode. Um, And then to see him kind of just like embracing it and letting loose and really seeing him happy. We don't see Richie happy ever really before, you know, this moment. So I think it's a testament to seeing him be so stubborn, seeing him try to fight things. And then when he eventually just gives into this, you know, seemingly cheesy song and seeing the real joy and pride uh, coming through in that moment. I hope we did Taylor proud (laughs) because it's such such a great song. And 
and Evan is such an amazing actor. I just always love that moment. Yeah, and how could you guys know she'd be like the dominant pop culture force of the summer? I mean, maybe we know the, knew the tour was coming, so maybe you did. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's no, it, it, it seems to align perfectly. Yes, <laughs> of seeing people rocking out to Love Story in in real life, and then also Richie doing it. I know <laughs> in the bear world. <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) So you come back for season two. The show's been this massive hit, you know, beyond, I imagine, what you expected. What else felt different as you came back to work on season two? Yeah, coming back to season two, um, you know, like you said, it was kind of a pleasant surprise that season one took off the way that it did, but it was mostly just centered around being in the kitchen all together. And then as I was reading the scripts for season two, it was really cool to see them really taking a risk by going out of the kitchen and also really making Carmi kind of a secondary character. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, season one is almost entirely driven by Carmi. And this season, we really were able to get into the heads of other characters. And that was something we really talked about a lot in the editing was letting the pacing and the editing style really changed depending on who was driving the story. And Sydney's episode, episode three, feels very different from the rest of the series because we intentionally want to lean into what it would feel like to go into her head. And she is someone who always has like a million ideas going on at once. You know, she's really motivated, but also maybe uh, doesn't always know how to prioritize her, her creative impulses. So being able to cut those montages that were kind of a look into her creative process was so, so fun. Then the episode her after- montage not to interrupt you but like that montage where she eats her way across Chicago is incredible I I can't imagine looking at all that footage every day and not going out to eat I know I was like I need to plan a trip to Chicago just to do the food (laughs) tour we were like she needs like a a calorie counter oh my god like how much has she eaten in one day it's so impressive you know my goodness maybe a little artistic Um, liberty there with how much you can eat in one day (laughs) exactly we see her take a couple bites she held back yeah um but then in episode four, you know, that that's Marcus's episode and going to Copenhagen, you know, Adam and I edited that episode together. It was directed by Rami. And we really talked about it being so much more meditative mm-hmm. and introspective. And Marcus has kind of always been this island of calm in this crazy environment of the bear. So being able to really spend an episode with him and... You know, we, we pulled back the music a lot in that episode. We really let some of the montages just play in silence and see the world through his eyes. It's also the first time we left Chicago. Um, so I think, yeah, being able to like lean into a little bit more character development and letting the editing style also reflect their personalities was a really fun thing to to work on and we kept saying this was our like empire strikes back season because everyone was like going and doing their like becoming like training you know becoming (laughs) masters of their craft and then bringing it back to the restaurant to then you know open up the bear and hopefully succeed aka you know take down the death star so yeah i loved (laughs) i loved that reference early in the season from chris and josh because it really was a, a helpful way to think about okay we're gonna follow everyone on their own journeys but only because 
that's going to be in service of what they bring back to the table for this eventual victory. Yeah. And then the Claire scenes, like throughout all the episodes, they feel kind of like that sugar scene I was talking about in the first episode where it's like taken out of time. It can almost be a dream sequence. Like, is that cutting to her personality? Is that something totally different? How do those emerge? Yeah, I mean, I I loved Molly Gordon's performance as Claire, and I felt like she just has this natural warmth and charisma and compliments Jeremy's acting style so well. Um, And yeah, I think because she's so tied to Michael and knowing Carmi from when he was younger, I think we really did want to make all of her scenes feel a little bit like a dream or a memory um, and make it feel like she maybe wasn't completely rooted in the reality of everything else that was going on. And she also was supposed to be very much like escapism for Mm -hmm. Carmi. You know, he has all this stress going on and this is the first time he's kind of allowed himself to be distracted. So I think we did want her scenes to feel a little bit more like a departure. Like we kept talking about episode five being like our our John Hughes episode. You know, it's like (laughs) the most rom-com the bear can get because we're kind of seeing their, their attraction and seeing this relationship build and yeah, fireworks in the background at a line hey, exactly. house party yeah <laughs> some great replacement songs yeah um so anyway yeah i think it was i think it was a, a a definite choice on chris and joanna and josh's part to make it feel like she was kind of taking carmy away from the story but hopefully not in a way that people resented just in a way that carmy's imagining what his other life could be like maybe he doesn't have to be somebody who has no you know social relationships or is only dedicated to his work and doesn't even know how to describe what fun is I think she's supposed to be this fork in the road to say okay this is what my life could be and then him figuring out how to balance it and spoiler alert not always doing the best job yeah but you also (laughs) need to balance it with Sydney whenever he comes back being like hey dude what what's the deal like the, the resentment has to be there on the background even as alluring as those clear sequences are Absolutely. And the writers and performers do such a good job of making that, making you understand both sides of the coin. You know, it's not like we're like, oh, yeah, Carmi should just abandon the restaurant and be with Claire. Like, that's obviously not the answer. Like, and that's not what Sydney wants. But also, you want him to participate while still being able to have a healthy relationship. So I think making sure both sides felt valid, um, I think was also really important and figuring out how much time we were giving to building up this relationship, but also showing the work they're putting into the bear, um, like finding that and, and, Trusting both people were well-intentioned, but not always delivering on their promise to be a collaborator um, was something that was really important to us. Yeah. I mean, it feels like from the writing and, and directing, too, that there was a confidence built from season one. Like, people get what the show is. There's like, you know, you can go to Copenhagen, you can do bolder things. Did you feel uh, emboldened in that way, too, in your work? Yeah, I would definitely say so. I think because season one was so well received, it was like, okay, we can like take some of the same risks again and maybe even push it further and, you know, getting a chance to maybe hold on sequences a little bit longer, not feeling like we always had to be, you know, operating at 100 miles per hour, but also having some of those moments, too, that are so much fun to cut. Like, we really start season two at a much slower pace than season one. Um, And I think that requires a lot of confidence mm-hmm. and I was even cutting it faster at the beginning and Chris was like no we want to like sit with Marcus and his mom like let's linger on this like we're going to set up the fact that like this is a this is the same show but it's a different a different season we're going to start with a different pace yeah that opening shot that really is a bold way to start when you think about it yeah it's so still there's not much going on I was trying to cut it right away Chris was like no 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 let's sit on it which was completely the right move but um but yeah it definitely was like finding finding the way to introduce us back into this world and then having you know when the refuse song comes in at the end of the first episode of season two it's like okay don't worry we're still gonna get crazy we're still gonna have some (laughs) some wild montages but also like this is going to be different and I, I applaud Chris for not just trying to do the exact same thing as season one like taking some different risks and um I think it it just made people fall in love with the show 
even more because he had built up so much goodwill with season one. Well, and the episode lengths vary so much. You know, the Christmas episode is over an hour. Like, is that part of that confidence, too, of, you know, you're like, no, we have to be in done in 30 minutes. And then you realize that you don't have to. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Chris is so great at being like, if we can shave any fat or cut any fat in like the early episodes, like, let's go for it. Like, I think finding our moments to linger, but then also moving things along and not feeling self-indulgent or just giving people enough information to get it. I think we really try to reward people who are watching closely and, you know, paying attention to all Mm -hmm. the little asides. Like we're mentioning the fridge throughout the entire season from like the very first uh, scene when everyone's together, they're already talking about the fridge being broken, which obviously pays off in the finale Mm -hmm. um, as something that everyone just keeps procrastinating about and then ends up you know, making things difficult for them. Um, So yeah, I think trying to not rush through things, but also keep things moving at a pace that um, is engaging and, you know, still able to emotionally connect with all the different characters, but also letting those more, I guess, expanded episodes feel like they warrant the time too. And I think we, we needed every minute of the Christmas episode to just understand what a, what a train wreck it was turning into. So being able to have uh, the space and time to play with that really made a big difference. Yeah. I mean, in my memory, that showdown between John Bernthal and um, Bob Odenkirk goes on for like five minutes. So them staring at each other. I know it's not that long, but like you sit in that horrifying space for such a long time. You really have to. Absolutely. And we really built in silences too. Mm-hmm. Like if you're just looking at people staring at each other in silence, even if it's only actually a second, like it could feel like a minute because for such a loud show too, I think that's also something that by having moments that are so loud and busy, the quiet moments and the slow moments feel extra slow, even if they're not actually that long. So mm-hmm. I love being able to play with that contrast and really have, you know, the loud moments feel loud and the quiet moments feel quiet and understand the emotional effect that has for the audience. Yeah. I mean, obviously, season three is a million question marks with everyone still on strike. But do you feel like there would be changes in store like that, like that the purpose of the bears to evolve in that way and like you guys would want to keep pushing somewhere? I think so. I mean, I just really trust, you know, Chris and Joanna and Josh and all the writers and the creative producers behind the team. Like, you know, as I was reading season two for the first time, I was like, oh, this is kind of sad. Like, they're going to tear down the restaurant. And then, you know, by the end of the first script, I was like, all right, I'm sold. Like, I, I, I want to do whatever, wherever you guys are taking us. So I I, we haven't, I haven't heard what season three would be about, but I imagine it would be like, you know, a slight reinvention or seeing what the world of the bear is now that it's a functioning restaurant. Like, yeah. what does that mean? Um, and I just love all the characters so much like I I just want to hang out with them again so yeah (laughs) I'm excited that we'll hopefully get to do that that does it for today's interview episode we'll be back on Thursday we'll have our book club discussion of Martin Amos's The Zone of Interest among other things find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider and I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich our editor and producer as always is Brett Fuchs Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.